All right, well, hey, everybody, welcome to Eagle Brook Church. It's really good to have you with us today if you're at one of our campuses or if you're watching this message online. This is a big week for me. Uh, of course, I'm referring to the NBA draft. It's kind of like a holiday around my house. You got Christmas, you got Easter, you got the NBA draft somewhere down the line. Uh, but, and I'm, by the way, I'm very thrilled about the trade that Minnesota Timberwolves made uh, as well, in case you were curious how I felt about that. I mentioned that last night at the four o'clock service and people started to applaud. I thought, what a church, huh? How about that? Excited about that as well. But I always feel a little guilty for the amount of time I spend on the NBA draft, so it's good to be with you all in church and talk about more important matters. Uh, Speaking of which, we are wrapping up a series today that we've been in for the last three weeks called From the Ground Up, where we've been looking at the life of a man named Nehemiah from the Old Testament. And if you missed those three weeks, I encourage you to go back online and watch them. But just to get you caught up to speed a little bit, the year is 444 B.C., And Nehemiah is working as a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes of Persia. And then one day, Nehemiah's brother comes from Jerusalem, which was his homeland. And he tells him that the walls of Jerusalem were down. And it says that Nehemiah was devastated by this. Now, I remember when I was a brand new Christian and I heard a sermon about Nehemiah, I thought, what's the big deal with this wall? Like, why does he care so much? Why is he devastated by this? I was picturing like a fence in your backyard. It's kind of falling down. Oh, he's devastated. But back then, a wall would be what would protect your city from attack. If you didn't have a wall, an enemy army could just waltz right in and take whatever they wanted. But if you had a wall to protect your city, at least they had to try to get over the wall. And while they were doing that, you could shoot arrows or throw spears and you could protect yourself. So when it says that the walls of Jerusalem were down, it meant that Nehemiah's family members, his friends, they were vulnerable to attack. And so Nehemiah looks at this whole situation. He goes, somebody's got to do something about that. Why not me? And isn't that an interesting approach? Oftentimes we see something that's not right and we go, somebody's got to do something about that. Why isn't the government doing something? Why isn't my church doing something? And Nehemiah takes a completely different approach. He goes, God, how about me? Why couldn't I do something to rebuild those walls? And so he begins to lead teams of people and progress is being made, but that's when opposition comes. We talked about this last week. Two guys named Sanballat and Tobiah, they begin to oppose Nehemiah. They try to discourage him. They try to distract him. They try to discredit him. But Nehemiah simply prays for strength and keeps on building. But that leads to a question that I want to raise today, which is this. When Nehemiah prayed for strength, what exactly was he looking for from God? I mean, you'll hear people use that phrase. I prayed for strength or God gave me strength. But what does that really mean? What does that really look like? Practically speaking, how does God give a person strength? It's an important question because maybe some of us came to church today. And if you were honest, you would say, I am worn out. I am so worn out, and I don't know how I'm going to have the strength to keep going. Others of you would say, I just feel weak. And so when you hear me talking about strength that you can receive from God, you're going, how do I get that? I need that in my life. Well, today I want to show you my favorite verse from the entire book of Nehemiah. And this is a verse that I really hope you'll be repeating to yourself this week. You'll be memorizing it and repeating it. Here's the verse. It's Nehemiah 8, verse 10. It says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That when you have a deadline at work and you're completely stressed out about it and your boss is being unreasonable, 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. When it's a Friday night and all of your friends are at a party and they're posting about it on Instagram and you're home alone and lonely, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When it's summertime and your kids are out of school and they keep making messes everywhere they go and they won't pick up after themselves and they're fighting with their brothers and sisters, you need to keep telling yourself the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's the joy of the Lord that gives you the strength to keep building, to keep going. So here's the question I want to ask you. How joyful are you these days? I run into people all the time who seem to be lacking in joy. For example, a few weeks ago, I was driving along a freeway that I don't normally drive on. And I was in a conversation with my kids, wasn't really paying attention. And all of a sudden, I realized that my lane was ending. And I was at the point where there was really nothing I could do about it. So I just put my blinker on and kind of cut the guy off and merged into that lane. And right away, I could tell this is going to be trouble because the guy behind me quickly whipped into the left lane, ironically cutting the guy off behind him and pulled as fast as he could right up next to me. Now, whenever this happens, the first thing I do these days is I look for an EBC sticker on their car. I just think this would be hilarious if the person pulled up next to me and they're like, burr, burr. that's my pastor, you know, I just, maybe not fun for them, but I'm really looking forward to that if that ever were to happen someday. And so I look and he doesn't have an EBC sticker, which was a good thing because of course his finger goes up in the air. And for like 30 seconds, I mean, really long time, he's just driving alongside me with his finger up in the air. Now, my daughter's in first grade, so she doesn't quite know what these things stand for. And so she goes, Dad, look at that guy next to us. What's he doing? I said, well, you know, maybe he goes to our church and maybe he thinks that I'm the number one pastor there. <laughs> Bob's okay. He's decent if you're into that kind of thing. But I think he's telling me you are number one. What else are you supposed to tell your daughter in a situation like that? Now, most of us probably don't have road rage. Maybe some of us do, but most of us probably don't have road rage. But like I said, I run into people all the time who seem to lack joy, myself included at times. I mean, there are mornings when I will wake up and I can just feel the melancholy all over me. You ever felt that way before? It's almost hard to smile. I mean, physically, you can feel that there's a lack of joy in your life. And so you're crabby with people and you're irritable, even with the people you love the most. It's on those days I have to remind myself, Jason, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So let me ask you, how joyful are you these days? When was the last time you felt some genuine joy in your life. I meet people who they have money, they have friends, they have success and achievements, but the one thing that they're lacking in their life is joy. Every day it's just the same thing. They wake up, they go to school, they go to work, run some errands, go out with some friends, watch some TV, maybe try to get a fussy newborn to sleep. And you do that long enough and pretty soon you might wake up one day and go, I don't have any joy in my life. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, which makes me wonder, how do you get that joy? Because if I'm going to have strength and I'm going to get it from the joy of the Lord, I need a little infusion of joy into my life today. And so in our time left, let me give you three ways 
that you can increase your joy right out of the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to get these right out of the story. The first one is this. Put yourself in a place where you can hear from God. So Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And then I want you to see what he says just two verses later. He says, they had great joy because they had heard God's words and understood them. Now that surprises me. Does it surprise you? I mean, I would expect Nehemiah to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So to get more joy, we went on a vacation. Or we made plans with some friends to go to a cool concert because that's oftentimes what we think is going to bring us joy. But Nehemiah says it's deeper than that. That really joy comes when you put yourself in a position where you can hear from God. In fact, after this wall was completed, they celebrated with one another. And I want to read you the description of this celebration. They say the book of the law of the Lord, their God, was read aloud to them for three hours. Then for three more hours, they took turns confessing sins and worshiping God. I don't want to hear any more complaints about the length of our services here at Eagle Brook. <laughs> you ought to be lucky that Nehemiah is not your pastor. Six hours, three hours of just listening to God's word being read. And they didn't have plasmas or videos to break things up. They just sat and they listened. In fact, I want to read to you Nehemiah 8, verse 8, because this verse is so at the heart of why we do church the way we do church here at Eaglebrook. Here's what Nehemiah says in that verse. He says, they read from the book of the law and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. I'll be talking to a Christian sometimes, and they'll say something like, you know, I, I wish my church's teaching was deeper. And whenever I hear that, I'll always ask a follow-up question. I'll say, well, what do you mean by that? Because oftentimes people mean different things. And sometimes what I'll find as I talk to them is what they're really looking for is big words. They want to hear words like progressive sanctification and penal substitutionary atonement. And they're reacting more to a style than anything else. Now, there's nothing wrong with those words. I, I enjoy reading books and studying those kinds of theological concepts. But I want you to notice what Nehemiah did here. He did the exact opposite. It says he taught the Bible in a way that people could clearly understand. I was talking to a guy recently who was fairly new to our church. And he goes, man, I'm telling you, I get something out of the message every week. He said, I can actually understand what's being taught and I can apply it to my life. And he was shocked by this. I was sad that he was so shocked that a church would teach the Bible in a way that you could clearly understand, particularly sad when you see how Nehemiah did it. In fact, when Nehemiah says that the joy of the Lord is his strength, he wasn't kidding. Because when they gathered the nation together, they did three things. They confessed their sins, they read from God's word, and then they worshiped God. Sounds a lot like church, doesn't it? It's one of the reasons why I try to be in church every single week if I can. You know, in our, in our family, with our four kids, we'll, we'll be driving to church. And I'll hear things like, he's pulling my hair. And his leg is too close to my leg. Tell him to get his leg a little further away. And he smells. And that's just my wife. <laughs> the kids are way worse than that. And that's on the way to church. And then when we get in the car after church, 
I see this joy and there's this happiness and there's this kindness towards one another. Now, not every time, of course, but a lot of the time. In fact, a few weeks ago at the four o'clock service, I was just attending with my wife. And just that morning, I had been reading a verse in the Bible that just kept sticking with me. And so as we were singing to God, this verse kept coming to my mind and God started to convict me of some sin in my life. And I began to confess sin. So there you see, read the Bible, confess sin. And as I'm worshiping God, tears come to my eyes. They weren't sad tears. They were the joyful kind of tears that come when you realize you're getting right with God. And that of all the billions of people on this universe that God would take time to speak to you. Friends, you don't get that playing video games or at a party. You don't get it at the cabin or at your kid's sporting event. I realize it's summertime. Everybody wants to be outside and we don't have retractable roofs on our campuses. I'm, I'm bummed about it like you are. We really got to work on that. But for those of you who came to church today or for those of you who took time to watch this message online, my hope is that you would get done and you would go, oh, I'm so glad we did that. I'm so glad we got up and we showered and we got to church. I'm so glad that even though we're at the cabin, we took some time to watch the message online. Because when you get around other people and you begin to worship God and confess your sins and read aloud from his word, your joy starts to increase and your problems, they start to look a little bit smaller. It's the first way to increase your joy. The second way to increase your joy is this. Don't compromise your integrity. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit in the Nehemiah story and go back to chapter six, because there's this guy named Shemaiah. And I realize this gets confusing. It's like Nehemiah, Shemaiah, Maya, Maya. Who are all these people? I don't know why they couldn't have different names to distinguish them. But Nehemiah goes to this guy, Shemaiah. And I want to read to you what Shemaiah tells him. He gives him a suggestion. He says, hey, let's meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the door shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. Now, on the surface, this seems like a kind gesture. He's warning him, hey, there's people coming to kill you, and I got an idea. Let's go meet in the temple of God, because nobody's going to kill you in the temple of God. That would be sacrilegious. All of this is very logical, except for one problem. Only the priest was allowed to go into the temple, and Nehemiah wasn't a priest. In other words, Shemaiah is asking him to compromise his integrity. And I want you to see Nehemiah's response because this is pretty forceful. He says, no, I won't do it. No, I'm not going to compromise my integrity. I'm not going to go into the temple. In fact, I am never, ever, ever going to do that. Nehemiah goes on. He says this. He says, I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he'd uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat, again, that's his enemies, had hired him. He says, they were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin by following his suggestion. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. Let me ask you, what would discredit you? I mean, I turn on the TV or look at the news all the time and I hear about another DUI, another affair, uh, some other compromise in integrity that's given people a reason to accuse and discredit. It's one of the reasons why we say around here that you need to make a never ever list. You need to have some things in your life that you go, I have predetermined, I have predecided. I am never ever going to do that. 
I don't care what the circumstances are. I don't care how I feel at that moment. I am never, ever going to do that. In chapter 10, the people in Nehemiah's day, they begin to recite their never, ever list out loud. And here's one of the things they say. They say, we promise not to let our daughters marry pagan people of the land, nor let our sons marry their daughters. In other words, we're not going to marry somebody who doesn't share our values. We're not going to marry somebody who doesn't love God like we do. I don't care how good looking they are. I don't care if all my friends are getting married and I'm still single. I'm never, ever going to compromise on that one. Let me ask you, do you have a never, ever list? Are there certain things that you have pre-decided, predetermined? I am never, ever going to do that. I want to show you the story of a man who had to make his never, ever list the hard way. And unfortunately, that's how it is for most of us, that we come to these things through experiences and we go, wait a minute, I, I'm never, ever going to do that again. But I hope that you can learn from this. And I hope you can be inspired that God can work in your life no matter what your situation is. Take a look. My name is Adam Lund. I grew up in a house where both my parents were alcoholics. As a kid, I saw the effect their drinking had on our family. My sister and I vowed we would never end up like them. But by the time I was 14, I was using drugs and drinking almost every day. My life was going nowhere. Everybody's rock bottom is different. Mine came on June 9th, 2007. I was out partying and was determined to get home so I could work the next morning. My friends had taken my keys, but I had an extra set. I was blacked out driving down County Road G near Richmond, Wisconsin when I crashed my car. I came to in a field a short while later and saw flashing lights in the distance, so I ran in the opposite direction. The next day, I woke up in a barn. I had no idea where I was, couldn't find my car, and didn't remember anything from the night before. Later that day, the cops contacted me and told me that they knew that I crashed my car and they wanted to meet up to do an accident report and make sure that I was okay. When I got there, I, I met with an officer and he said, do you know what you had hit? And I said, a telephone pole or a tree? And he said, no, you hit a guy in a motorcycle head on and he's in the ICU. My heart just dropped. I was just in a, a daze, like I wasn't even really there. I had no idea what to even think at that point. So all I could think about was there's some guy out there that could die and there is nothing I could do about it, not a thing. And I just wanted it to be a nightmare. I wanted it to wake up and I didn't want to live. I, I didn't want to, I couldn't handle that feeling knowing that I had caused that. So at that time, uh, I, I didn't really know Jesus, but I remember as a child, my mom would tell me if I was ever in trouble to just put my hands together and pray. So I, I was praying for this guy to be okay, and I was also praying for God to take my life because I just wanted out. And uh, I'd pray that same stuff over and over for about three days in the middle of telling God I didn't want to be alive anymore, he had stopped me and he said, no, you got to give life a chance. I'll be there for you. You got to get sober and you got to stick with it. 
and I'll get you through this. And it was a big turning point for me. While I was waiting trial, the man I had hit did have a miraculous recovery. He did still have serious injuries, but I was very thankful that he was out of the coma and he was improving. I got sentenced to two and a half years in prison, and I got out a year early doing an intense drug treatment program, and I was really excited to start a new life. I kind of had a list of things that I wasn't going to do when I got out to keep me on the path that I was headed down. And that included not having any alcohol or drugs, not hanging out with people that were doing those things. I wasn't going to let faith take a back seat. I wasn't going to break any of the rules of probation. I also didn't want to date women that weren't Christian. I also had a list of things I needed to do. I needed to go to church every week, serve, go to AA, meet with my sponsor, hang out with sober people and people from my church. I found it important to create those boundaries and having those lists really gave me the freedom to live without having to worry about the decisions I had to make because they were already made and set in stone. It's hard to believe how much has changed in the 10 years since the crash. I've had to deal with all the guilt, shame, and regret from what I did, and it's been really hard at times. But God keeps showing up, and I could have never imagined the life I have now. In 2015, I met my beautiful wife, Bonnie. She is the love of my life. Together, we made our own never list, as well as the list of things we'll always do. Our baby boy Locke is six months old and he brings us so much joy. This month I got to celebrate my first Father's Day as well as 10 years of sobriety. I am so blessed. Isn't that amazing to see what God can do in a person's life? But I want to ask you today, anyone here close to a crash? I mean, sometimes you can just feel it. There's the warning signs that are there. You can just tell, you know what, if I keep going at this pace, if I keep doing this, if I keep spending time here, I'm headed for a crash in my life. In fact, Pastor Andy Stanley uses the illustration of guardrails. He says, why do guardrails exist on a freeway? Well, it's to prevent you from going over the cliff. It's to prevent you from having a crash. But here's my question. How many of us, when we drive... Try to get as close to the guardrail as we possibly can. I mean, do any of us get in our car and go, I'm just going to scrape my side mirror right up against that guardrail, and then hopefully I'll be able to pull back and live to tell the day. Does anyone drive that way? Probably not, but if we don't drive that way, then our cars that way, rather, then why do we drive our lives that way at times? I was reading an article recently in the Star Tribune about work spouses. I didn't even know this was an actual term, but a work spouse is somebody of the opposite sex at work that you relate to like you would relate to your spouse. So you joke with each other, you flirt with each other, you go out to lunch, just the two of you, a work spouse. And the premise of this article was that your job satisfaction, your joy at work would actually go up if you had a work spouse. 
Now, I realize that some people probably use this term jokingly, and they'll say, ah, you're like my work spouse kind of thing. Or, or I also realize that just because you have a quote-unquote work spouse, that doesn't mean that relationship's going to necessarily lead to an affair. But can we use a little bit of common sense here for a moment? Let's say you want to build a marriage. You're not trying to build a wall like Nehemiah, but you're trying to build a marriage. Let me ask you, what is one of the things that would cause that marriage to potentially crash? Well, probably an affair, right? And if that's the case, then why would you want someone at work that you joke with and you flirt with and you go out to lunch, just the two of you, a work spouse? If you want to build a great marriage, don't drive with your side mirror right up against the guardrail. You don't drive that way, so why live that way? It's one of the reasons why Nehemiah says in chapter 10, he he just lays it on the line for people. He says, will you or will you not obey God's commands 100%? Not 75%, because that's what a lot of us do. We go, Lord, I surrender 75% to you. But that 25% over there, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and and I'm going to kind of ignore you on that one. And this is really critical because God doesn't give us commands because he's trying to steal our joy. People think this all the time. They think, oh, God's just about rules and commands, and he's just trying to restrict my joy and my fun. The reality is that God gives commands because he knows that that 25% of your life, the 25% of your life that you say, God, just leave me alone there, that 25% is going to cause enormous pain for you one day. Friends, there's going to be tremendous heartache for you in that 25%, and it will be what steals your joy. If you want to increase your joy, if you want to maintain your joy, do not compromise your integrity. Here's the third way to increase your joy. You have to celebrate what you have instead of lamenting what you don't. Celebrate what you have instead of lamenting what you don't. So this wall gets built took 52 days, which is incredible. I can't even remodel my bathroom in 52 days. And these guys built a wall around the entire city. And you would think that once the wall went up, they would all be very happy, right? Because that's how we tend to think. We tend to think, you know, when this gets done, then I'll be happy. Not happy today, but when this happens, when I get done with that project at work, when I retire, When I finally move into that house or go on vacation, well, then I'm going to be happy. I'm not happy right now, but one day I will be. But that's not often how joy works, is it? If you don't have joy today, oftentimes completing that wall or completing that project isn't going to give you joy tomorrow. In fact, when the wall gets built, Nehemiah gathers the people together and they're actually weeping. So much so that Nehemiah has to come to them and go, you guys, This is a celebration. We need to celebrate what God has done. Let me ask you, do you celebrate enough? Do you celebrate what God has done in your life? In the Old Testament, God prescribed 12 different feasts and festivals that were to be celebrated annually. Some of them were over a week long. Now, why would God do that? Is it because God's really stern and serious because that's what many people think about God? No, it's because God understands that your joy will increase when you celebrate what you have instead of lamenting what you don't. But that's real challenging when there's something in your life that's lamentable, when there's a loss in your life. 
few weeks ago, I told my two oldest sons, I said, hey, why don't you guys go out in the backyard and pitch to each other? Both of my sons are playing traveling baseball this spring. They both do a little bit of pitching. And so I said, instead of us going to a you know, batting cage and hitting off a pitching machine, we could save some money. Why don't one of you pitch, the other one hits, and I'll catch. Now, Hudson, my nine-year-old, who's the younger of the two, you could tell he was a little nervous about this. Because when he was putting his batting gloves on in the kitchen, he turned to my wife and he goes, well, hopefully this isn't the last time you see me. And then grabs his bat and heads out to the backyard. Now, Micah, my 11-year-old, was pitching. And I wouldn't say that Micah throws particularly fast, but he's extremely accurate. And so I said to Hudson, I said, Hudson, why are you nervous? Micah's never hit anybody in his life. But Micah's been trying to experiment with throwing faster. And I noticed that day he was throwing harder than I had ever seen him throw before, but he wasn't as accurate. First pitch was way outside. Another pitch went over Hudson's head. And when it went over Hudson's head, Hudson turned to me and was like, he had this look on his eye of like, dad, get me out of here. And I was being a stupid father because my exact words to him were, swing the bat. You get in there and you swing the bat. And then I got down in my catcher stance and Hudson walked in and kind of tapped the plate and got down in his stance and the next pitch hit him straight in the face and knocked out two of his permanent teeth. He didn't even cry. He just started stumbling back and he was spitting something out. I thought, did he have sunflower seeds in his mouth? And then I realized that he was spitting out bits of his teeth. And I've been sad about this for weeks. Every time I think about it, I think, oh, I just want a do-over. You ever felt that way before? I just, I just want a do-over. I, I want to go to Micah and go, hey, don't throw so fast. Just throw strikes. I, I want to go inside and get a softer ball and say, hey, guys, let's, let's play with this one. I want to be a better dad who doesn't push his son into doing something that clearly his intuition was telling him something bad was going to happen. But every time I look at it, I think, oh, that's, that's permanent. He's going to deal with that for the rest of his life. And maybe there's something like that in your life right now, where you lost your parents this past year. And when you look back on that relationship, you go, oh, I would do anything for a do-over. I would do anything to say that differently or to do that differently, but there's nothing you can do now. It's, it's permanent. Or maybe you lost a marriage. And you go, oh, I just, I just wish I could have a do-over on that one. But you can't. Or, or maybe you lost a loved one. And you look back on it, and every time you think about it, there's just this, this nightmare that gets replayed in your mind, and you keep thinking to yourself, that's permanent, that's permanent. I can't believe that that's actually permanent. And what I want you to hear today is this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Not just Nehemiah's strength, it is your strength. In fact, I want you to see what the Bible says in the book of James. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I remember reading that for the first time and thinking, clearly this person hasn't had a lot of trouble in their life. 
Because if they had had some big trouble, they would know it's not real an opportunity for joy. But the older I get and the more trouble I have, the more I believe that this is true. In fact, a week later, Sarah and I began to just thank God. And one of the things we thanked God for was a great dentist who goes to our church. Because we called him at 7.30 at night and we said, hey, and he said, I'll meet you at the office. And he was able to help us out and we thank God for that. And, and we thanked God that the pitch didn't hit Hudson in the eye socket or in the face somewhere. I've heard of kids dying in situations like that. We, we thanked God for that. And we thanked God that it was two of his lower teeth. And so when he smiles, you, you can't even really see that his teeth are missing. We began to thank God for what we had instead of lamenting what we didn't. Now, maybe you say, you know what? Well, that's easy for you. You just lost a couple of teeth and, and I've lost something much, much greater in my life. And, and you're right. I don't know how people have the strength to face those kinds of situations. I don't know how they have the strength, but I do know what their strength is. It's the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a joy of knowing you can take anything on this earth away from me, but you can't take away my relationship with God. That will last forever. It's the joy of knowing that you have eternal life and that you are one step closer to that, one day closer to that than you were yesterday or the day before. It's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. And so my prayer for you today is that you can begin to receive that joy and receive that strength into your life. And to do that, we wanted to create an experience. And we wanted to create an experience around communion because communion is a celebration. It's almost like an anniversary where we remember that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us and that his, he paid the penalty for our sins. And so at this time, I want to invite the communion servers to come down and begin passing out the elements at your campus. And if you're at a campus where it's at the end of your row, you can go ahead and begin passing that down the row at this time. See, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. He then took the cup and he raised it up and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we do. We eat and we drink and we remember the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but the Bible says you do have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so if that's not you, you can just go ahead and let the elements pass. There's no shame in that whatsoever. It's a little tricky. You have to peel it back once to get to the bread and then another time to get to the juice. But I'm going to encourage you not to just rip into it right away. I'm going to encourage you to sit with the elements in your hand for just a moment and pray. Because as I mentioned earlier, when Nehemiah gathered the people together after they had built this wall, they did three things. They confessed their sins. They heard the promises of God, and then they worshiped God together. And we thought, what if we reenacted that today? What if today, thousands of years later, we did the very thing that Nehemiah and his people did on that day. And so as you sit in your seat, there's going to be some questions and some scripture verses on the side screens. 
that are gonna lead you into a moment of confessing your sin. And even if you're watching this message online, I wanna encourage you to participate with us in this. There's something powerful when you confess your sins and know that you have gotten right with God. And then we're gonna hear some scripture verses read, some promises of God. And I want you to receive those into your life that God is speaking to you today and reassuring you and reminding you of some powerful truths. And then at your campus, your worship leader is going to stand you and we're going to close by singing together. And we are going to remind ourselves that the joy of the Lord is our strength.